With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 448. It's titled, Where Are Interest Rates Headed Next? Insights from the Jackson Hole Symposium. Each year in late August, just over the mountains from our cabin in Idaho, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City hosts its annual symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This prestigious event is attended by central bankers, policymakers, academics, some investors, and a few journalists. You need an invite to go. It's a highly curated list. Of course, I've never been invited, even though not that far of a drive. The agenda is very focused. They'll discuss employment, central bank policy, financial markets, economic growth, and trade. In this year's symposium, there are really six sessions or key topics. That's not including Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell's speech or Christine Lagarde's luncheon speech. She's the president of the European Central Bank. The conference is kicked off by the speech by the Federal Reserve Chair. And the theme on Friday, it's a two-day event, was monetary policy and growth. And then on Saturday, the theme was global trade and global financial flows. In her luncheon speech, Christine Lagarde quoted the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who said that life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Lagarde continued, since our policies operate with lags, we cannot wait for the parameters of this new environment to become entirely clear before we act. We have to form a view of the future and act in a forward-looking way. But we will only ever truly understand the effects of our decisions after the fact. So we will have to establish new frameworks geared towards robust policymaking under uncertainty. Central bankers have to make decisions not knowing what's going to happen. It's highly uncertain. So when we think about our own investing, clearly, We don't know what's going to happen. We're making forward-looking decisions under uncertainty, including how much to invest in bonds and whether we should lock in higher rates, for example, by buying a treasury inflation protection security right now, where we can get a real yield of close to 2%. Over the next decade, earn 2% plus the rate of inflation. That seems like a straightforward decision, but what if real rates go higher? And we'll feel regret because we missed out because we could have locked in interest rates even higher. Now, what are these central bank policy decisions that Lagarde refers to? She's the head of the European Central Bank. Their policy committee is making decisions. The Federal Reserve Open Market Committee is making decisions. One of their primary decisions is the level of short-term interest rates, what are known as the policy rates. In the U.S., it's the U.S. federal funds rate. 
deciding whether that rate should be higher or lower, and making those changes is what is known as monetary policy. As the Federal Reserve and other central banks raise short-term interest rates, that can influence longer-term interest rates because longer-term interest rates, one of the main factors is what is the consensus expectation for what the future short-term interest rates will be. For example, currently we're seeing real rates increase and nominal interest rates increase in the U.S. And a primary reason rates have gone up in the last three to four months is because the consensus is the Federal Reserve will not be lowering its policy rate as soon as was expected three or four months ago. Short-term rates will stay higher for longer, which pushed up longer-term interest rates. So that's, that's one policy decision central banks make, what is known as monetary policy, increasing or lowering short-term interest rates. A second policy decision that central banks can make is whether to buy or sell assets, primarily government bonds, but it can be other assets. And this process of buying assets is known as quantitative easing. Selling those assets or letting those assets mature without buying new ones is known as quantitative tightening. We won't talk much about quantitative easing and tightening today, but suffice to say, quantitative easing that purchasing bonds at the same time a government runs a big budget deficit, spends more than it takes in in tax revenue. The combination of those two things, which effectively means the central bank is monetizing the national debt, can significantly increase the money supply, the amount of cash flowing into the economy and increasing the wealth of households. They have more money. Businesses have more money. And they spend that money, which led to the high levels of inflation that we have today because of the big budget deficits and the quantitative easing that occurred following the pandemic. Why do central banks take these policy actions, either to raise or lower the policy rate, to enact quantitative easing? They're trying to increase or slow down the rate of economic growth by encouraging or discouraging investment, borrowing, purchases. The idea is that if interest rates are higher, households and businesses will borrow less to buy things, to invest in new factories, new endeavors. Because if there's too much investment, too many purchases of cars and houses, at a time where there just isn't sufficient capacity to, to produce that, there isn't enough of them that can lead to constraints that lead to higher prices, what we know as inflation. Central banks also make these policy decisions to influence the rate of employment. If unemployment is very low and wage pressures are increasing, the policy rate could be increased in order to hopefully slow the economy down so that Perhaps the desire to hire new workers is less in some, so there's less wage pressure. In his Jackson Hole speech, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell spoke about two important targets that central banks have. The first is their inflation target. Here's what Powell said. 2% is and will remain our inflation target. We are committed to achieving and sustaining a stance of monetary policy that level of short-term interest rates that is sufficiently restrictive 
to bring inflation down to that level over time. That's the bogey then. They're trying to get inflation in the U.S., the consumer price index, down to 2%. That's their long-term target. It's not zero because of the uncertainty as to what is the true rate of inflation. So they want to have it a little higher than zero so that they don't inadvertently encourage deflation or falling prices, which would be basically inflation below zero. The second target that central banks focus on is known as the neutral real rate of interest. R-star is another name for it. And this is a rate of interest that for the policy rate. So it's sort of figuring out what is the policy rate to ensure stable inflation and full employment. In other words, where the economy is at an equilibrium. That's an unobservable rate. So what the ideal policy rate should be to sustain full employment and low levels of inflation, nobody really knows. And it can vary over time. Powell said in his speech, we are committed to achieving and sustaining a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to that level over time, the 2% level. It is challenging, of course, to know in real time when such stance has been achieved. There are some challenges that are common to all tightening cycles. A tightening cycle is this having a high policy rate, a more restrictive policy rate that discourages spending and borrowing. For example, real interest rates are now positive and well above mainstream estimates of the neutral policy rate, that neutral real rate of interest. We see the current stance of policy as restrictive, putting downward pressure on economic activity, hiring, and inflation. But we cannot identify with certainty the neutral rate of interest, and thus there is always uncertainty about the precise level of monetary policy restraint. The central bankers don't know what the neutral real rate of interest is. Is it 2%? Is it 3%? They're pretty confident it's not 5% or 5.5% where the current Fed's fund rate is. But because they don't know exactly where that neutral rate of interest is, they don't know how restrictive they are being. And that rate can change over time based on what's going on in the economy. So, for example, if there is greater productivity growth. So workers are becoming much more efficient and using technology, all things being equal, that can lead to a higher neutral real rate of interest. If demographics are slowing, if, if there's a lower birth rate, if the population is aging, all things being equal, that can lead to a lower real neutral rate of interest. Both Powell and Lagarde in their speeches talked about uncertainty, that there are things that central bankers and policymakers are not certain about. Powell mentioned that job openings in the U.S. have declined substantially, but that hasn't led to an increase in unemployment. He says that's highly unusual. They're not exactly sure why, but it increases the uncertainty because suddenly something is happening that doesn't typically happen based on their models. Powell said these uncertainties, both old and new, complicate our task of balancing the risk of tightening monetary policy too much against the risk of tightening too little. Doing too little could allow above-target inflation to become entrenched and ultimately require monetary policy to wring more persistent inflation from the economy at a high cost to employment. Powell's worry is that if they're not restrictive enough, that inflation could stay higher for longer 
and households and businesses would just get used to higher inflation and start changing their behavior. And central bankers want households and businesses to be anchored to low inflation, thinking that's normal. Not that high inflation is normal, because if they get accustomed to high inflation and think that's normal, then it becomes much more difficult to bring inflation levels down. Because of all the uncertainty, as investors and even central bankers, we don't know where interest rates will go from here. We're not certain, nor are central bankers, when they will pause their policy rate hikes, which could put downward pressure on longer-term interest rates. We certainly don't know when they'll start cutting. And it depends on what the actual inflation numbers come in at and the employment trends. It depends on economic growth. Now, there are underlying trends that can influence what policymakers do, what central bankers are doing. And Lagarde pointed out three in her speech that there are changes, profound changes, she she said, in the labor markets and the nature of work. Some workers left the the labor force following the pandemic and never returned, or workers are working fewer hours. There's been more digitalization in terms of the manner of work, including the potential, and she mentions the potential of generative AI, other technological revolutions that could destroy jobs and create new ones. And so there's a lot of uncertainty, and we've talked about those themes. A second theme she talked about is is the ongoing energy transition to renewables from fossil fuels and the potential impact on climate change. And the third is what she calls a deep geopolitical divide. The global economy is fragmenting into different trading blocks. There's more protectionism, more trade restrictions. She says trade restrictions are up tenfold in the last decade or so, and that increases the uncertainty. Now, what central banks do in terms of changing their policy rates, pursuing quantitative easing or tightening, those are tactical decisions. They're looking at what's going on in their domestic economy and globally, and they're making decisions tactically. One of the papers that was presented at the symposium is by Chad Severson of the University of Chicago. He said, I do not have to tell anyone in this room that monetary policy, like most decisions large and small with economic implications, is usually an exercise in constrained optimization. You make adjustments in an effort to get closer to the best possible outcome given inherent limits. Fundamentals change in a way that necessitate tightening or loosening, and you turn the dial a bit this way or that in attempt to move things closer to the optimum. Trading off various considerations, labor, inflation, economic growth. He compares it to a dial and turning it a little bit, trying to get it in tune, the economy, and all those variables, despite all the uncertainty. And you never know. If you don't even know what the neutral target is, you can't really optimize it. But you're making constant adjustments, and it's difficult. But let's step back. Those are tactical decisions. What is the true driver of the economy? What are we trying to accomplish? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you're running a new or existing business, I can't think of a better partner than Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch of your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the do we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow, whether you're selling shipping supplies or clothing. 
they can help you sell everywhere with their all-in-one e-commerce platform, as well as their in-person POS system. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. When I order from an online shop and see that they're using Shopify, that gives me a great deal of confidence my order will be correct and arrive in a timely manner. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including Allbirds and Brooklinen and entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash David, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash David now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash David. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025, 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down cost. One, because your business is one of a kind, so you can get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. I know in our business, we've seen having the key information is critical to making better decisions. And NetSuite can help make that possible for you. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com david. Severson said productivity growth is the only way to sustain growth in income per capita over the long run. That over time, output incomes increase if each worker is able to produce more than they were before because of they either are more efficient at it, they get better at it, or because of technology. We discussed this back in episode 330, an episode on national wealth and well-being. And I said we can measure wealth and abundance in different ways. It could be purely gross domestic product, which is a measure of the value of output produced. But I said, I think we recognize that life is more than just output. What's produced? We don't need to keep producing more things. We can produce fewer, better things and focus on our well-being as opposed to continually creating more and more stuff just to keep things churning along, recognizing we have some biosphere constraints of natural capital, the, the constraint of the planet. The difference between having lots of output per person and having well-being or health and, and other basic goods that we've discussed. The most fascinating paper I read from the symposium was by Charles I. Jones of Stanford. And he got to really a way I hadn't really thought about this before. I, we know that long-term economic growth, increasing output, which hopefully leads to increasing well-being, not always, is a function of how many workers we have and how productive they are. We just saw that quote by Chad Severson. 
productivity growth is the only way to sustain growth and income per person over the long run. But Jones gets to the heart of it. He says that the key is ideas. He writes, because ideas are infinitely usable, living standards in any country depend on the total stock of ideas that have ever been invented throughout the world. He distinguishes between most things in the economy are what he calls rivals. We can only use one thing at a time, a computer or a barrel of oil or an hour of a surgeon's time, one at a time. They can't be divided, but ideas can. They're infinitely usable, is how he puts it. He gives an example of the COVID-19 vaccine or artificial intelligence. Millions or billions of people can benefit from those things. And so the, the rate of economic growth, our living standard, is based on how many ideas there are that are being implemented and how many new ideas are being created. He says ideas are discovered by people. So living standards are tied to the global number of people searching for ideas. He goes on in growth rates. This means that the growth rate of living standards in the long run depends on population growth. So we need population growth because not just so there's more workers to make things and people to buy them, but so that people, entrepreneurs, scientists, researchers come up with new ideas that can be shared across the world. One of the challenges, though, is that ideas are getting more difficult to find. Some data to support that is he looked at the percent of the economy that was invested in research efforts, both public and private, in intellectual property. And back in the 1930s, it was about 1% of GDP. Today, it's 6% of GDP. So more investment in the creation of ideas. But despite that higher investment, the overall stable growth rate of the economy, going back to the 1880s, has been about 2% per year. In other words, the world is having to invest more in creating ideas because they're getting more difficult to find to sustain that economic growth. Because as the economy gets bigger, the amount on an absolute basis of growth you need in terms of the dollar increase in GDP, not the growth rate, but the dollar increase needs to be greater. And you need the ideas. The way that he puts it, our stable growth rate of 2% per year has been achieved while investing an increasing share of GDP in intellectual property products. But that exponential growth, it gets more difficult because you need more and more ideas. And this is a concept we've talked about in the podcast, that it's difficult to keep growing, 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 and particularly if you have to come up with ideas that are infinitely shareable. And we're in an era where population growth is slowing. So there's, there's fewer people, ultimately, or will be, to create these ideas. Now, there are some things, some additional trends that can hopefully generate more ideas that Jones points out in his paper. One is the rise of China and India. As more and more individuals get out of poverty, it gives them more time to search for ideas that can be shared. There's improved allocation of talent, more women in the workforce coming up with more ideas. In 1976, only 4% of inventors that received patents in the U.S. were women. In 2020, it was 12%. More diversity leads to more ideas. And the third element he points out is artificial intelligence. He writes, the final tailwind is perhaps the most uncertain but has the greatest upside potential. 
The recent emergence of ChatGPT and other large language models indicates dramatic advances in artificial intelligence. Machines are increasingly able to substitute for humans in various tasks. We have argued that a lack of talented people to search for new ideas is an impediment to future growth. What if machines can replace people in this task as well? I agree with that. In the episodes we've done on artificial intelligence, on AI, it's that impact. I use ChatGPT all the time to help generate ideas for the podcast and other endeavors that I'm working on. Presumably, other people are, and that's why it's infinitely usable. They're ideas. Another thing that leads to greater ideas is something Chad Severson spoke about, dynamism. The idea that a higher turnover in the labor market as people move to different companies or as new companies are formed, that dynamism leads to greater productivity. That's what the data supports, and that's what gets to this concept of more ideas, more churn in the workforce, more churn in terms of companies because more productive businesses, Severson points out, are more likely to grow and survive, and less productive ones are more likely to shrink and exit if governments allow that to happen. And one of the good things or good news is this dynamism seems to be increasing the last couple years coming out of the pandemic. Monetary policy, it turns out, actually influences idea creation. One of the papers presented at the Jackson Hole Conference was by Yuran Ma and Casper Zimmerman. And they found that monetary policy, that level of policy rate, has an impact on innovation. They found a tightening shock of 1% led to a decline in research and development spending of about 1% to 3%. And that venture capital investment declined about 25% in the next one to three years. So VCs investing in new ideas, investment in R&D, that is also influenced by the level of interest rates, which is influenced by policy rates. Ideas then are key. At the heart of it, what we need for greater well-being, a higher standard of living, are more ideas. There is something, though, that puts a damper on this. And this was a paper by Barry Eichengreen and Sirkin Arslanalp. And it was titled Living with High Public Debt. And they pointed out that public debts have risen for both good and bad reasons. Good reasons was macroeconomic responses and to to fight the pandemic, what they call financial and public health emergencies. But the bad was not reducing the debt balance during the good economic times. And that is what's happened the past few decades. So since the global financial crisis back in 2008, the debt ratio, the total public national debt to GDP has gone from 40% to 60%. And we've done episodes on this about the U.S., Their point is, that's not likely to ever shrink. In order to reduce the public debt balance to GDP, you need high sustained economic growth. You need ideas, productivity increases, population increases. It's just not likely to happen. The challenge of that is it it can lead to higher interest rates, a higher real rate of interest, not because productivity is increasing, but just because of the sheer supply of bonds that are being issued. And that's another reason real rates could be going up currently. So when we step back and think about where are interest rates going, if we get more ideas, greater productivity, faster economic growth with plenty of jobs, that can lead to 
potentially higher real rate of interest, a higher neutral rate of interest, but modest levels of inflation because there isn't the capacity constraints because we're, we're kind of at that equilibrium. If, however, there are fewer new ideas, population shrinkage, lower productivity, slower economic growth, that would lead to lower real rates of interest, except because of the high national debt burdens and the huge supply of debt that needs to be refinanced, that could push in the opposite direction. Talk about uncertainty. Central bankers don't know what the right level of interest rates will be. They don't know exactly that unobservable, real neutral rate of interest. And if they don't, we certainly don't. So we don't really know where interest rates are going. But we still, just like central bankers, have to take action under uncertainty. And what we can do is we can see where we are today. What is the market's temperature? And that, that's what we do on the podcast, but certainly it's what we do in our monthly investment conditions and strategy report on money for the rest of us plus. And in just talking about it and sharing what I'm doing in my portfolio, one of the discussions we've been having is, as recently as our most recent plus episode 447, is now's the time to lock in interest rates. If we have a set time horizon, we could go out and purchase a Treasury Inflation Protection Security, a 10-year bond, and lock in 2% real rate of interest plus inflation. That's the highest real rate since 2008. I went back and, and looked at 10-year real rates going back to 2003. The highest that I saw that it had been during that 20-year time horizon is 2.7%. Something extreme, maybe see it over 3%. But the reality is we can earn 2% plus inflation by buying tips currently. One reason I've bought tips in the last six months, it's perhaps a reason to take some money out of cash and put it into a longer-term bond fund that is investing and has some of these longer-term bonds and locking in those higher rates. It's sort of the difference between deciding whether to have a fixed-rate mortgage where you can lock in a rate or a variable-rate mortgage where you're exposed to changing interest rates. If we keep all of our bonds sort of cash right now, we're exposed to potential for falling interest rates but also keeping the optionality to invest if real rates go higher. I suggest finding a right balance, having some longer-term fixed-income investments, buying an individual tips, for example, or an intermediate-term bond fund, because we don't really know where rates are going. Central bankers don't know. We've talked about some of the themes that could influence it, what influences the economy, what influences interest rates. But what we do know is where we are today. We can take action based on where we are today. That's episode 448. Thanks for listening. I have loved teaching you about investing on this podcast for over nine years. Some topics, though, are just better explained in writing or with a chart. And that's why we have a weekly free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. That's why I spend a couple hours on that newsletter on Wednesday morning, as I try to share something that will be helpful to you. If you're not on the list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. We've not provided investment advice. 
This is Simply General Education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.